Content warning for white supremacy, racial stereotypes, and violence. To the Chinese American community, my name is Eileen Huang and I am a junior at Yale University studying English. I was asked to write a reflection, maybe even a poem, on Chinese American history after watching Asian Americans, the new documentary on PBS. However, I find it hard to write poems at a time like this. I refuse to focus on our history, our stories, and our people without acknowledging the challenges, pain, and trauma experienced by marginalized people, ourselves included, even today. In light of protests in Minnesota, which were sparked by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of racist white and Asian police officers, I specifically want to address the rampant anti-Blackness in the Asian American community that, if unchecked, can bring violence to us all. We Asian Americans have long perpetuated anti-Black statements and stereotypes. I grew up hearing relatives, family, friends, and even my parents make subtle, even explicitly racist comments about the Black community. They grow up in bad neighborhoods. They cause so much crime. I would rather you not be friends with Black people. I would rather you not be involved in Black activism. The message was clear. We are the model minority doctors, lawyers, quiet and obedient overachievers. We have little to do with other people of color. We will even side with white Americans to degrade them. The Asian Americans around me, myself included, were reluctant and sometimes even refused to participate in conversations on the violent racism faced by black Americans. Even when they were hunted by white supremacists, even when they were mercilessly shot in their own neighborhoods, even when they were murdered in broad daylight, even when their children were slaughtered for carrying toy guns or stealing gums, even when their grieving mothers appeared on television begging and crying for justice, even when anti-Blackness is so closely aligned to our own oppression under structural racism. We Asian Americans like to think of ourselves as exempt from racism. After all, many of us live in affluent neighborhoods, send our children to selective universities, and work comfortable professional jobs. As the poet Kathy Park Hong writes, we believe that we are next in line to disappear, to gain the privileges that white people have, to be freed from all the burdens that come with existing in a body of color. However, our survival in this country has always been conditional. When Chinese laborers came in the 1800s, they were lynched and barred from political and social participation by the Chinese Exclusion Act, the only federal law in American history to explicitly target a racial group. When early Asian immigrants, such as Bhagat Singh Thind, attempted to apply for citizenship, all Asian Americans were denied the right to legal personhood, which was granted only to free white persons until 1965. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, Japanese Americans were rounded up, tortured, and detained in concentration camps. When the Cold War reached its peak, Chinese Americans suspected of being communists were terrorized by federal agents. Families lost their jobs, businesses, and livelihoods. And when COVID-19 hit the U.S., Asian Americans were assaulted, spat on, and harassed. We were accused of being virus carriers. I was recently called a bat eater. We're made to feel like we have excelled in this country until we are reminded that we cannot get too comfortable, that we will never truly belong. Here's a story of not belonging. On June 19, 1982, as Detroit's auto industry was deteriorating from Japanese competition, Vincent Chin, a 27-year-old Chinese-American, entered a bar to celebrate his upcoming wedding. Ronald Evans, a laid-off white auto worker, and his stepson, Michael Nitz, were there as well. 
They followed Chin as he left the bar and cornered him in a McDonald's parking lot, where they proceeded to bludgeon him with a metal baseball bat until his head cracked open. It's because of you that we are out of work, they had said to Chin. Later, as news of the murder got out, Chinese Americans were outraged, calling for Evans and Nitz's conviction. Chin's killers were only charged for second-degree murder, receiving only charges of $3,000 and no jail time. These weren't the kind of men you sent to jail, County Judge Charles Kaufman had said. Then who is? Watching Asian Americans, I was haunted by the video clips of Chin's mother, Lily. She is a small Chinese woman who looks like my grandmother or my mother or an aunt. Her face crumples in front of the cameras. She pleads and cries in a voice almost animal-like. I want justice for my son. Yet in all of Lily's footage, she's surrounded by black civil rights activists, such as Jesse Jackson. They guard her from the news reporters that try to film her grief. Later, they march in the streets with Chinese American activists, holding signs calling for an end to racist violence. Though we cannot compare the challenges faced by Asian Americans, the far more violent atrocities suffered by Black Americans, we owe everything to them. It is because of the work of Black Americans, who spearheaded the civil rights movement, that Asian Americans are no longer called Orientals or Chinamen. It is because of Black Americans who called for an end to racist housing policies that we are even allowed to live in the same neighborhoods as white people. It is because of Black Americans who pushed against racist naturalization laws that Asian Americans have gained official citizenship and are officially recognized under the law. It is also because of Black activism that stories like Vincent Chin's are even remembered. We did not gain the freedom to become comfortable model minorities by virtue of being better or hardworking, but from years of struggle and support from other marginalized communities. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a Black man, was accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill at a deli in Minneapolis. In response, Derek Chauvin, a white police officer, tackled Floyd and knelt on his neck for seven minutes. In videos that will later circulate online for three minutes in a pool of his own blood, Floyd is seen, is seen pleading for his life, stating that he can no longer breathe. Instead, Chauvin continues to kneel and kneel. Meanwhile, in the background, Tu Tao, an Asian American police officer, is seen standing by the murder, merely watching and watching, and saying nothing as Floyd slowly stops struggling. I see the same kind of silence from Asian Americans around me. I'm especially disappointed in the Chinese American community, whose silence on the murder of Black Americans has been deafening. While so many activists of color are banding together to support protesters in Minneapolis, so many Chinese Americans have chosen to stay out of this disobedience. The same Chinese Americans who spoke out so vocally on anti-Asian racism from COVID-19 are suspiciously quiet when it comes to Floyd's murder, as well as Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, and countless other Black Americans who were killed merely for existing. I do not see us sharing sympathy for Black mothers who appear on television, begging, like Lily Chin, to see justice for their sons. I do not see us marching with Black protesters. I do not see us donating to Black-led organizations. I do not see our outrage as white murderers, such as Vincent Chin's killers, receive no jail time for killing innocent Black Americans. I do not see us extending any solidarity toward the Black protesters who have been sprayed with tear gas and rubber bullets only a couple weeks after white COVID-19 protesters armed with AR-15s were barely even touched by policemen.
Instead, I see us calling them thugs, rioters, and looters, the same epithets that white Americans once called us. I see us, such as members of my own family, merely laughing off President Trump's tweet about sending the National Guard to Minnesota as if it were a joke and not a deadly threat. I imagine where we would be if Black Americans did not participate in Asian American activism. We would still be called Orientals. We would live in even more segregated neighborhoods and attend even more segregated schools. We would not be allowed to attend these elite colleges, advance in our comfortable careers. We would be illegal aliens. We and everyone else would not remember stories like Vincent Chin's. I urge all Chinese Americans to watch media such as Asian Americans and to seriously reflect not only on our own history, but also on our shared history with other minorities, how our liberation is intertwined with the liberation for Black Americans, Native Americans, Latinx Americans, and more. We are not exempt from history. What has happened to George Floyd has happened to Chinese minors in the 1800s and Vincent Chin, and will continue to happen to us and all minorities unless we let go of our silence, which has never protected us and never will. Our history is not only a lineage of obedient doctors, lawyers, and engineers. It is also a history of disruptors, activists, fighters, and above all, survivors. I think often of Yuri Kochiyama, a Japanese-American survivor of internment camps who later became a prominent civil rights activist and who developed close relationships with Black activists such as Malcolm X. We are all part of each other, she once said. I urge you all to donate to the activist organizations listed below. I refuse to call for racial justice of our own community at the expense of others. Justice that degrades or subordinates other minorities is not justice at all. At a time when many privileged minorities are siding with white supremacy, which has terrorized all of our communities for centuries, I want to ask, whose side are you on? and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a whole bunch of different topics. The person you just heard was Eileen Huang, a rising junior at Yale University. And what she was reading was a letter from a Yale student to the Chinese American community a letter she wrote at the end of May, which has already gotten over 15,000 shares on the original publishing platform, ChineseAmerican.org, and has gone viral and been read over 100,000 times on WeChat, the Chinese messaging and social media app. So today, Eileen is joining me to talk about her letter, its reactions and reverberations in various Asian American communities, and how she's planning on taking her sentiments and activism from one viral letter to a full-blown long-term project. Eileen, thank you so much for being here today and for reading your letter out loud. That was incredibly powerful. Um, how have you been lately? We obviously haven't seen each other in person for a while now. Thank you so much for inviting me onto Homecoming. Um, and I'm really excited to talk more about Asian American issues and about the letter in general. Um, I've been doing pretty well. I guess I'm, 
I'm quite overwhelmed by the response the letter has gotten, but um, in a very good way, because while there, there's been a lot of controversy, apparently, over this letter that I wrote, there's also been um, this influx of positive responses from people who said um, they're now in support of BLM, or they're, they've reconsidered a lot of their views um, about race in America, so that's been very encouraging for me. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about the reactions to your letter um, later on in the episode. But before I get into the questions, would you mind just first introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Eileen Huang, and I'm a rising junior at Yale University studying English. Um, I'm actually primarily a creative writer, so I write a lot of poetry. But um, this summer, also be focusing on uh, writing a lot of prose about race, uh, race in America, ethnic studies, and um, Asian American issues. Awesome, thank you. So you obviously just read the entirety of your letter. So now the listeners know what your letter is about, they know what it calls for, but can you kind of walk me through why you decided to write this letter in the first place? Because I think it's pretty clear that these thoughts of yours didn't just suddenly come up after George Floyd's murder. Like you've obviously been thinking a lot about this for a while. So also, you know, how has maybe your background and your experiences as a Chinese American factor into your decision to write this letter? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually did not plan on writing this letter. Uh, These are all thoughts that I've had for a really long time, but um, I was initially approached by Chinese American, which is the site that published it, um, to write a reaction to this new docu-series on PBS that just came out. Um, I mentioned it in the letter, Asian Americans. Um, And I had a friendly, uh, I have a family friend who uh, writes for this publication. So she was the one who approached me about it. Um, And she wanted me to write a poem about Asian American history. But at the same time that that was happening, um, the George Floyd protests had just intensified and um, everyone was seeing this horrific video of, um, you know, this black man's death. And really that was just kind of what everyone was thinking about for the last few days. So I thought it would be insanely inappropriate for me to write, um, to act like nothing was happening and just write a piece about um, Asian American history with like by excluding um, Black Americans. So I, I just shared a lot of thoughts that I had about um, anti-Blackness in the Asian American community and also in my own community that I just really wanted people that I know, people in my actual community to read, um, which is why I wanted to use a platform like WeChat. Awesome. Yeah. So one thing that I really want to emphasize about your letter is that I feel like I don't believe you're saying that Chinese Americans don't have their own hardships or that they aren't compassionate people. I think you're just um, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're just encouraging people to self-reflect and try to be actively anti-racist. And I talked about this in the two previous episodes on homecoming, but I think even when we call on our peers or our family members, um, let alone strangers, to think and self-reflect, people can get super defensive and feel like we're kind of invalidating their struggles. 
So what are your thoughts on that? And why do you think self-reflection is so hard for people to do? Um, yeah, I mean, that's really insightful. I think that's definitely what I intended with my um, essay that went up uh, was definitely not to, I was not super interested in condemning or, you know, canceling an entire community or an entire group of people. Um, it was more so to point out a lot of these sort of structural flaws um, in our community because um, so much of it is really, really deeply anti-Black. Um, and you can really tell from a lot of the reactions, the negative reactions I got to my article. Um, but yeah, I agree. A lot of people were really, really defensive after the article came out. Um, to this day, I still get like a couple people or so every day who find my Instagram account and they say something like, oh, you can't represent all Asian Americans. But I'm like, I never claim to represent all Asian Americans. I think I'm just pointing out these larger sort of patterns. But people have been very, very quick to sort of absolve or detach themselves um, from this conversation on anti-Blackness. But I think it's very telling that if your first reaction is defensiveness, um, you know, maybe this article hit a little too close to home for you. Um, I was talking to my mom about it right after it came out and it was kind of blowing up and she's very supportive of it. Um, and she said, you know, if you poke people in a spot where it hurts, they're going to yell. Um, and so I think a lot of people have been yelling about it recently. Um, it's definitely died down, which I'm very thankful for. But when it, the article came out, there were all these sorts of think pieces in response to, to mine where there are some very, um, very, very, uh, you know, expressly anti-Black statements expressed in those piece. Um, so I think we're seeing a, a large level of defensiveness from a lot of people in the Chinese American community. Yeah, that's a really insightful saying from your mom. Um, so about the reactions, like, like you've mentioned, you've definitely received a range of different reactions, but what do you feel like have been the messages you've received that have meant the most to you? Um, so the ones that have meant the most to me are definitely the more sincere ones. Um, I think a lot of people have felt very pessimistic about my essay because um, I've gotten a lot of comments that are, I'd say, rather tone policing. They're like, oh, you're never going to win anyone over, you know, by you know, showing uh, shaming them or telling them that they did something wrong. You have to be more moderate, you have to be more polite. But I don't think that's true because I've gotten a huge response from people who are like, wow, this letter really opened my eyes to a lot about American history or it's encouraged me to start looking into American history and black and Asian solidarity more. Um, I even get pe letters from people that I didn't expect this letter to reach or to touch. Um, one of my, my friends um, DM me saying that uh, her grandmother had read the essay and um, she was very touched by it and that um, she had shown it to all of her relatives in China um, and she decided we have to stand with the Black community, we have to stand with Black Americans. Um, so it's been very, very um, encouraging for me to see all these people from different backgrounds um, really rally behind me and rally behind um, Black Lives Matter. It's just not a conversation I imagined would ever happen in my community or um, in a sort of WeChat community that I was familiar with. So those have been 
messages that meant the most to me. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned how there were these older generations of Chinese Americans who were reaching out to you and having specific reactions. And it's pretty clear that there are also a bunch of young people out there reacting to your letter. Um, do you feel like in general, younger people, younger people and older people have had largely different responses to your letter? And if so, in what ways have they sort of been different? Um, I think there's, I think there has been a quite a stark difference between how um, sort of my generation, or as we say, like the second generation of Chinese Americans have responded to this letter and, um, you know, our parents or our elders who are um, immigrants to the United States have, they've responded to the letters. I think there's definitely quite a gulf there. Um, a comment that I get very often from the angry Chinese parents who read this letter is that I'm, they, they're, they feel very offended and disrespected by it because um, it's sort of implicitly written to my elders or written to the older generation because it's on a platform like WeChat and it's available in like Chinese and Mandarin. Um, and they say that I'm not, I'm not adhering to like Confucian values or stuff like that and I'm being very disrespectful by speaking down at them. But um, I definitely don't think I am. And I think that's a very toxic sort of mindset to have, which is you can't learn anything from the younger generation um, or you can't learn anything from your children because that's simply not true. Um, parents and children or older and younger generations can grow mutually from listening to each other and engaging with each other. Um, I also think the sort of difference in response or the disparity in responses has a lot to do with history and it has a lot to do with background. Um, so for a lot of uh, older Chinese American immigrants, um, they came to this country uh, and, you know, unlike us, they didn't have to sit through the, you know, uh, public school education system or um, you just generally have less exposure to American history in general. Um, but then like our younger generation, we go to college, we can take all these classes on ethnic studies and Asian American or black history. Um, and we learn about histories like um, Asian American and black solidarity, um, like uh, the Asian Americans who supported the Black Panthers and um, the black Americans who supported Chinese liberation um, or uh, movements in China. So there's a really long shared history that a lot of us are more aware of, um, but that's not necessarily the case for a lot of older immigrants who just come here and um, are sort of, they cling on to this model minority myth um, without really questioning it or um, seeing that it's really, you know, really just a, just a myth. Do you feel like there's also been a sort of difference in reactions even between older generations? Like when we think about our parents versus our grandparents, because I feel like when I shared your letter with my parents and my Chinese grandparents, like the reactions were pretty different. I think that my grandparents were a lot more supportive. They were like, yeah, like I, I really like the way this girl is writing this. I really vibe with it. But then I think my parents were a bit more skeptical, I guess you could say. So is that something you're seeing as well? Yeah, I actually have noticed that a lot more that um, 
like older generations, people who are grandparents, um, tend to be much more receptive to it. And um, I also wonder if that has to do with like history, especially Chinese American history, um, because my, you know, my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was personally very involved in sort of these liberation movements in China, or um, a lot of people still had that sort of like revolutionary spirit or um, whatever from that time. So I think um, I've noticed that a lot of older people are really receptive to hearing this new perspective and um, very respectful of the younger generation's opinions. Um, and I think, I think I do understand where, you know, people like my parents or my parents' generation, um, these immigrants to the U.S. are coming from because I think um, they're hurt because they think this article is discrediting their, their labor and their hard work. Um, but it's not. It's really not. Um, it's not actually even really about them. Um, I can write about them. I can write about Asian American um, struggle and formation, but um, I, I think right now is really not the time and place for that. And people just have to accept that. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of parents, so another thing I've been thinking a lot about, especially after having conversations with my parents about your letter, is how to engage everyday. Asian Americans. And I know that's what your letter is trying to do. But I've been, for example, talking to my dad a lot about your letter. And, you know, for him, he's someone who works these super long hours every day. And like when he reads articles like yours, and when he reads the news, it maybe resonates with him in that short period of time. But at the end of the day, he's really focused on how he can provide a living to his family. And he's also been telling me about how he's not really sure how he, one Korean American guy, can actually make a systemic change. So my question to you is, why should people like him care? And for Chinese and Asian Americans, who maybe don't know what to do or they're living in places where there maybe aren't that many black people or race is not really something at the forefront of their minds. Like how can these Asian Americans um, actually make a real and lasting impact that ultimately uplifts black people? And what do you have to say to those Asian Americans and what do you suggest that they do? Well, I think, you know, just even watching the news and engaging with articles like mine or with the news or um, <clears throat> with articles about Black history and Black activism, that's a really good start. Um, and I think one of the things that my essay really aimed to do was to show people that this is very relevant to your lives. It's not really something that we can stay out of. We can't really sit out of this because... Um, we, well, first of all, we should support Black Lives Matter because um, it's very violent not to. Um, if we don't you know, speak up about it, we're kind of um, implicitly siding with white supremacy and we're siding with white silence, um, which is just wrong. But also, um, you know, the, the struggle for Black liberation um, is a struggle that ultimately tries to dismantle racism uh, and white supremacy, which are things that also affect our community. Um, so I just want people to see that, you know, it's it's something that directly affects us. Like, 
we can't avoid it. Um, and it's something that's actually very pertinent to our lives. Um, and it can't really be this sort of side hobby of ours. Um, uh, so I hope that, you know, by sharing these sorts of educational resources and continuing to write and, you know, I'm really encouraged to see other like second generation Chinese Americans also doing the work and trying to educate their families and um, their relatives and elders. Um, I think people will begin to see how relevant it is to our lives and how important it is that we participate in these movements as well. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of Asian Americans are definitely starting to realize that after reading your essay and seeing all these protests that are happening and um, engaging with friends and family. Um, I also wanted to talk about another popular response that I've seen to your letter, which was this other letter to the Chinese American community that Harvard junior Kalos Chu wrote at the beginning of this month. And it was kind of a response to your letter and this other letter that was circulating on WeChat. And I also know that now you and Kalos have created this sort of long-term project with a huge team of Chinese American students and adults who are helping you. So can you tell me a little more about this project, like what you guys are planning on doing and what are sort of your mission and goals moving forward? Yeah, sure. So um, Kalos is someone who, um, saw my letter and saw the sort of um, defensive responses it was getting and decided he wanted to write something in support of me to show that, you know, this isn't just one person saying this, um, it's actually a whole generation or a whole um, group of people, uh, you know, your children who really care about this and we're telling you all of this because we care about you and not because we're very interested in like condemning you. Um, so that was really good and I think it really, um, emphasize my point that I'm, I'm less interested in seeing people, you know, get canceled for their anti-blackness and sort of more interested in seeing where it comes from and how we can sort of get rid of that. Um, and uh, right now, uh, we are definitely trying something out with this WeChat project and hopefully getting more people to write a few essays on, you know, uh, relevant subjects, like some that we're sort of brainstorming um, are police brutality, um, things like abolition, uh, the abolition of the police state and of the prison system, um, protests, so forms of protests, looting, rioting, because those are um, a lot of things that Chinese Americans, particularly older ones, have a lot of uh, misgivings about. Um, just sort of these things that our audience would be interested in hearing um, even things, you know, outside of Black Lives Matter, like queer liberation movements, which are also very intimately intertwined with um, Black history, um, things like Stonewall and Pride Month and all these things. Um, we're hoping to address them too. But I also see like there's already sort of this movement happening, um, you know, without us, um, which is really encouraging. Like every day I feel like I see a new letter come out from a second generation addressing the old, older generation or all these sorts of like open letters. And it's really, really cool to me that um, I sort of accidentally encourage people to actually start like talking to their parents. So I feel like this is something that so many of us were really um, scared or really reluctant to do before because it's just very frustrating to talk to older people about these issues. Yeah, and this is something that I have also discussed on the previous episode about Black and Asian solidarity, but I've been thinking a lot about whether 
to focus my energy on people who are sort of on the fence and they don't know what to do or how to support the Black Lives Matter movement, or if I should focus my energy on people who hold biased and racist views, like whether I should try to change the latter's mind or if I should try to provide support and education to the former. Um, so what, what do you think about that? And moving forward, where do you sort of stand on that issue? Are you trying to focus your energy more on people who are not sure or the people who are just full on on the other side of the fence? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And I think my position on this is I'm willing to talk to whoever is willing to listen. Um, so I think mainly my audience in the future writing things like this would be people who are interested in learning and are interested in growing, but um, who are ultimately very receptive to it. Um, and that those are the kind of people who have responded very well to my article or, you know, maybe with a lot of valid points on how the message could have been, could have been better conveyed. But um, I think my goal is definitely not to debate people and to argue with people because I feel like that's extremely unproductive. Um, and it'll be much more meaningful to mobilize support and, um, you know, uh, try to engage other people who are willing to be talked to and to listen to um, instead of talking to people or trying to argue with people who are very uninterested or who um, are deliberately sort of writing these um, counter pieces uh, because they have, you know, their own goal in mind, which is to support and side with white supremacy. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't think it'll be very productive to engage them. Um, but I also am really interested in sort of debunking a lot of the things that people are putting out in response to my article. So I feel like, I hope in a couple of days this will get published, but I wrote a response to some of the responses that I'm seeing, um, where it's a lot of people who are saying things like, um, really anti-Black things like, oh, you know, if Black people wanted to get policed and harassed less, um, why don't they just work harder? And, you know, just really sort of baseless things like that, that I think can be very impressionable for people who are kind of on the fence about it. Um, but I think it's very dangerous because, you know, uh, there's a lot of misinformation on WeChat and once things like that go viral, uh, it can be very dangerous and uh, misleading for a lot of people. So I, I do hope to kind of debunk or counter those, but ultimately I'm really less interested in arguing with people or, you know, trying to quote unquote change people with really, really biased and quite deeply concerning views than I am with actually engaging people who are interested in having this intergenerational dialogue or this um, intercultural dialogue. And speaking of conversations with family, do you have any suggestions on how young people should go about starting and having conversations with their family members about race and internal biases and racism? Because I have been talking a lot with some of my close friends and they're saying 
just how difficult it is to start conversations with their family members, let alone like change their parents' minds. Um, like, for example, with one of my best friends, like she was telling me how she had this super heated argument with her mom and how her mom maybe budged 0.01% if she was lucky. And you know, for me, like when I used to see on social media, people posting, like, definitely like try to have those difficult conversations with your family members and your friends about race and like, you know, talk to people in your spheres about racism. Like, I was like, well, yeah, duh, of course. Um, But I definitely underestimated how hard that could be. So do you have any advice for how people should go about doing that? Yeah, um, that's something I've been thinking of, you know, the best way to do that um, a lot over these past couple of weeks, like when my letter has been circulating. Um, And I've gotten a lot of suggestions from a lot of other young Chinese Americans who are also having difficulty or being frustrated talking to their elders and to older generations. Um, But some like overall advice that I've heard is really good is, um, you know, understand where people are coming from, um, ask them about their own experiences with struggle and um, oppression and feeling sort of underestimated or subordinated. Um, and then you can start talking about, you know, have maybe those experiences are tied to things like racism and white supremacy. Um, and then start building from there and saying like, oh, Black Americans, you know, they, all, they also suffer from this same structure, this same set of institutions that we do. So you can see how our struggle is sort of intertwined like that. Um, And just slowly starting from there, um, just, you know, starting from a very empathetic point of view or assure them that, you know, you're only telling them this because you really care about them um, and you see their ability to change and you see their ability to grow and learn. Um, But I think like the most important part is just to be very consistent. Um, And I would know this because I'm someone who has been trying to talk to my parents about this for like years and years now. And it's very, very frustrating because a lot of the times, um, as people have told me, these can really result in some very heated arguments because um, some people are very firm on their beliefs and, um, you know, they don't think they're anti-Black, they think they're right. Um, So I think you just have to be very consistent um, because like, even though it's very difficult for us, um, we can't, you know, it's still, like, once again, we can't center ourselves um, in this conversation on anti-Blackness or um, Black liberation. You know, we just have to do our part. Um, and all, if we, you know, let our parents or let our elders keep thinking these ways or just not engaging with them, I think that's also sort of a level of we would be, be very complicit in upholding white supremacy and upholding anti-Blackness. Um, Like, I just think about how frustrated I get sometimes when white people, you know, instead of talking to their um, racist relatives who, like, voted for Trump or something, they just sort of cut them off or ignore them because it's like you can use your privilege um, to educate them or you can use your proximity to them to um, get them to budge a bit on some of their stances that actually hurt other people. Um, So I think it's really important to keep sight of, you know, the goal and the bigger picture and... Um, you know, there, there'll definitely be setbacks and it'll be definitely be very, very frustrating, but it's something that we must try to do. And ultimately, what role do you envision Asian Americans playing in this fight for justice and Black liberation? 
Well, one thing that I think is really great that our our community is doing is educating each other. Like, um, aside from my letter, I've seen so many different um, Asian American communities compile resources about BLM and Asian languages for people to read or just doing a lot of the work of like writing these articles and um, creating these organizations or movements like Letters for Black Lives, that's one of them, um, or just these sorts of groups that, you know, purposely work to educate people and to uplift our entire community to help the Black community. Um, and I also like think, of course, you know, we have to commit to a lot of actions such as like donating, um, actually showing up to protests, going to like these cleanups, or, you know, not letting our momentum get stopped. Um, because like, as we've seen in the last couple of days, a lot of media coverage of the protests has really trickled down, but that doesn't mean that this is not a pressing issue anymore. Um, Anti-blackness is something that has been very consistent and very deeply rooted in this country. So we really can't lose our momentum um, after a couple of weeks. Um, but I ultimately see, I really hope to see Asian Americans become more aware, especially newer immigrants, like um, one of the really valid pieces of criticism I got from my uh, article was that it wasn't, um, it was from a very, it was told to a very niche group of Chinese Americans, <clears throat> which is like to say, probably newer immigrants came here after the 70s, um, or, you know, came here to, uh, because they had visas granted to them because they were highly educated or came to get professional um, um affluent jobs and they settled in very wealthy areas. Um, so people like my family, um, uh, because that's a huge group that is contributing to the anti-blackness. Um, but something I hope to see in the future is for, you know, everyone to broaden the understanding of Asian American and realize that includes like small business owners or it includes like refugees and undocumented people. Um, and to see how to, you know, build solidarity within our own community and then continue to build solidarity with the Black community. Um, I just feel quite hopeful after seeing a lot of responses to my letter. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Eileen. Um, that is the end of all the questions that I've prepared. But before we wrap up, um, I wanted to just do a round of rapid fire questions because I usually do them at the end of every episode um, so that the listeners can get to know different sides of you and they'll be super quick. So first question, Eileen, because you're an English major, who is your favorite poet and or what is your favorite anthology? Oh, um, I would say the person who really got me into writing poetry was Ocean Vuong. Um, he was just a huge role model for me. And, um, you know, his work has inspired so many other Asian American queer writers. So he's someone who's been very influential. Um, and I really loved his first, uh, one of his first poetry collections, Night Sky with Exit Rooms. I think it's very formative to my work. Um, and really he's just inspired like a whole generation of um, Asian American writers. So yeah, he's he's one of my influences. <laughs> oh my gosh, and he was going to come to Yale this spring. This I know, I'm so sad. Next I would have been like first in line to see him and everything. Yeah, yeah, he's so inspiring. So next question, what is another activity at Yale or outside of Yale that means a lot to you? Um, 
So one I haven't talked about in this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So at Yale, I'm also, uh, so it's funny that this piece got viral because I actually don't usually write nonfiction or I don't usually write prose. I primarily write a lot of poetry. So at Yale, I run a group, Juk Songs, which Angel Rena has joined. <laughs> um, and we're a spoken word and poetry performance group for Asian and Asian American identifying students. Um, so that's something I'm really passionate about. We just like get together and write and it's super fun. Um, and I guess outside of that, this doesn't sound really boring, but I really like working out and like going to the gym. Um, it's very unexpected, but it just, it like, you know, it helps, it helps me concentrate and it just gives me like something to do. Um, I'm actually quite, I'm quite into it. Nice. Uh, next question. What is something that's made you happy today? It was, um, very sunny outside today. So I went outside and wrote some poetry and, um, oh, I, like one thing I really missed uh, when I was at Yale about New Jersey is that for some reason only New Jersey and New York are the two states that know how to make bagels. So I got a nice bagel, a nice New Jersey bagel today, bagel sandwich, and I just sat outside and um, wrote some poetry and just enjoyed the sun. Um, and also I wore little pet shop earrings. Um, They're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, so I really enjoyed that today. Wow, that sounds like a good day. And last question, what is a message you have to all of the Asian and Asian Americans out there during this time? And what do you encourage them to do to support Black Lives Matter and the Black Liberation Movement? Yeah, um, I would say I think, you know, it's a very difficult and draining time for everyone, um, but especially for the Black community. So I think as allies or as people in solidarity with the Black community, we really have to step up during this time. Um, and take on a lot of the labor of educating each other and educating other people and also just sort of showing up and doing the work like donating, opening your purse and donating to Black Lives Matter or Black-led organizations or organizations that are working toward um, Black liberation. Um, and also, I mean, it's you can always keep educating yourself. Like there's a lot of books that I want to read during this time um, that would help me, you know, think through questions of like abolition and abolishing prisons and things like that, that I just want to learn more about. Um, so I think it's a really good time to, you know, let your anger, let your frustration really lead to productivity and lead to change. Awesome. Eileen, thank you so much for answering those rapid fire questions. And also thank you so much for joining me today. I know that you've definitely gotten a lot of backlash um and a lot of negative reactions to your letter um like people people on wechat are very strong but i think you are definitely equally as strong and i know that a lot of people out there including me um really thank you for being brave enough to write this letter distribute it um stand by your words and do so much more and Eileen, if the homecoming listeners want to read your letter or hear more about your future projects, where can they find you? Um, they can find me uh, on Instagram at um, at underscore Eileen Huang, E-I-L-E-E-N-H-U-A-N-G. Um, <clears throat> my Twitter is also, um, it's kind of an embarrassing handle, but it's at BVCowboy underscore and the has two e's in it um <laughs> yeah it's a mitski and megan the stallion reference but 
um, those are where you can find, you know, those are my most relevant social media links. Um, and I'll hopefully be sharing more work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, it was fun. And to the listeners, definitely feel free to reach out to Eileen if you have any questions. And also, just a quick plug, make sure to check out the last two episodes on Black and Asian Solidarity and subscribe to Homecoming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and other platforms you're using. But otherwise, I'll be here next week with another episode on mental health and talking about race with family members. So I'll see you all then. Bye. Thank you.